Well, welcome everybody to uh, uh, episode 77 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm in deep isolation. I'm Hugh Rimmett and I am hacking away uh, in a <laughs> hotel room. Uh, PVO, the prof, welcome, welcome to you. G'day, Hugh. Welcome back to Australia. Hopefully uh, you're, you're, you're safely in isolation rather than, than not safely. And, and how fitting, by the way, that this is our 77th episode, which is Joe Biden's age. He will be 78 by the time he's inaugurated, whether Trump likes it or not. Uh, but you're back from your US adventure. Tell us, what, what was it like? Oh, it's, it's too much. It's too much for a podcast, really. But uh, yeah, and I, I noticed imagine. that uh, we probably had our biggest podcast last time, chiefly backed on our sense of just astonishment as to where things had got to, and uh, and some salty language being being given in terms of character assessments for uh, Donald Trump. Uh, the events since that last podcast have only doubled down on those assessments would make about mm. Trump. Um, uh, just a, a small thing on that. My former colleague, the estimable uh, Christian Amanpour of CNN, has copped herself a bit of flack because she opened her show uh, with a reference to the fact it was the 82nd anniversary of Kristallnacht in Germany, the, the pogrom, which in many ways revealed the, the horror of what Nazism really meant for Germany. Uh, she said 82 years ago, Kristallnacht happened. Uh, she spoke of the Tower of Burning Books uh, that led to an attack on fact, knowledge, history, and truth. And she drew the, um, I suppose, a, a connection between that and, and life under Trump. And she's been royally hammered for that, proving that you never win an argument if you're the first person to mention Hitler. Uh, but at the same time, it, one of the things you say, what was it like? Um, I'm not going to go where Christian Amanpour went with all of that. But we are in a time, and Trump represented a time, in which we saw and have seen and continue to see essentially a burning of the books, uh, a destruction of truth. Uh, and it's revealed to us in many ways that um, we might have imagined that science, globalism, the exchange of ideas would lead to a greater and greater grip on what truth was. That might be what we imagined up to, say, 20 years ago. Uh, the digital age, weirdly enough, and Trump exploited this like no one else has done, uh, has made it clear that it's possible to use multiple sources which give equivalent value to utter falsehoods as to the truth to create alternative realities. And plainly large sections of the United States are living in an alternative reality cheered on by the outgoing president. And that is my ultimate takeout of, um, of the Trump years. And as I see it, a bullet that's been missed in the United States and in the world. Yeah, look, it's fascinating. I mean, just going back to the, the start of that point, which is, I guess, you know, drawing a parallel to Nazism, it is always seen as the easiest way to lose the argument by raising Nazism uh, in your argument, whatever that might be. For what it's worth, I've always found that silly because the whole point about trying to prevent history from repeating itself is an awareness of history. Uh, and Nazism is a pretty central element uh, of history of the 20th century. And it's a pretty important thing uh, with, to be aware of uh, as a guiding principle to avoid laying the foundations for the kind of despot uh, or nationalism or uh, version of ideology that reflects fascism that could lead to that kind of scenario. I understand the idea that people might want to might, might want to avoid throwing it around too freely. Uh, but when you look at someone like Donald Trump, the only reason, frankly, that I don't ha and, and haven't had the concern 
uh, the only reason that I haven't had the concern around Nazism uh, and fascism in the United States is a faith in the American institutions uh, rather than necessarily a faith in Donald Trump himself. He has proven himself just to be uh, bordering on a madman, frankly, including in the aftermath of not accepting the result and the cultural rich heritage of American presidents doing so. But it's the institutions of the US that I've had faith in, albeit I've been rocked, but I've had faith in versus, you know, you go back to the, the, the mid 20th century and, and look at Germany, the Weimar Republic was great on paper uh, as a theoretical model of democracy, but of course there was no institutionalized or cultural democracy well embedded in Germany the way that there is in the United States. But boy, uh, having said that, another four years of Trump, uh, I wonder how strong those institutions would have been at the end of that length of time, uh, because they were already substantially weakened after the last four years, I would argue. Yeah, and, and even if you look at those institutions, there is, there is none... Uh, more important than the uh, that other arm of government, the, the courts and the Supreme Court, and the fact that that has been openly, uh, you know, setting out to uh, essentially restructure that court uh, in his own image as to the degree that he possibly could, with by, by stacking it with conservative judges and so on. Um, I have a bit more faith in the judges themselves, but, uh, but there's no doubt that, he, that he, he, pushed, he pushed limits there. And the fact that 70 plus million people voted for him, um, mm -hmm. plainly the argument can be made that not all of them are, are, are fascists or travelers with fascism. And that's of course true, uh, but neither, if you went back to 1930s, did, did most Germans um, sign up to the SS you know, I mean, most of them supported him. You know, he was supported in the streets enormously by people who, you know, who didn't necessarily buy into the extremes of what he was doing. Some did, of course, but um, but that that's the thing that you, that you look at is that the mass population, uh, particularly once you've taken truth out of the equation, uh, can be manipulated and led into dangerous places. And I I, th I think that's really where it went. And a tribute to democracy, that much as Trump was able to uh, generate this enthusiasm among his base, and he got an extra 5 million odd votes, voters, uh, compared with 2016, he also built this determination by a larger number of people to make sure they didn't come to pass. So, um, so that came out, uh, and we are where we are. So that's Trump for the moment. We could go on, we could dedicate more shows to that, but there's just so Let's much. try to forget about him forever, Hugh. I think yeah. that's, that, that's, that, that's what I'm looking forward to. You know, at one minute past noon on the day of the inauguration, uh, hopefully he hasn't had to be put in cuffs and removed from the White House, but that's the point at which I'd like to forget the man. I worry that that won't happen, of course, you know, whether it's his own network, whether it's social media, whether it's, you know, claims that he or members of his family might run in 2024. I think that he's going to sort of be the unflushable turd of US politics, but, uh, you know, we can live and dream. Indeed. Well, we might see him bobbing around in the bowl for a while later on, but we'll do our best. Now, let's move on to uh, domestic politics. Where do we start? There's been so much going on. I wouldn't mind starting with robo-debt um, oh. because this is a shameful example of the state bullying the most vulnerable members of the citizenry. There's been no shortage of bullying of the vulnerable under the coalition government. Uh, in the course of its time. But robo-debt stitches together not only people who are on welfare or formerly on welfare, but look at the names who were 
the boosters for robo-debt, the enthusiastic boosters, Scott Morrison, formerly social services minister, then treasurer, Christian Porter, who, who was the minister in charge when robo-debt got launched, Alan Tudge, a name we've got to hear a lot more about in recent times than we ever thought we would, and Stuart Robert into the mix. Where does all that land in your view about what it says about competence and the lack of apology, quite apart from the legal outcome that we've now got, mm. which, which has been expensive? Well, look, Hugh, let's be clear. I think that when you call it shameful, you are massively undercooking just how bad this is. And I know that you're not, that's not your intention, but that is how horrendous robo-debt and the schmozzle around it has been at so many levels. I mean, if we work backwards, a $1.2 billion settlement, that's a settlement, okay? It didn't even have to be ordered by the court. That is what the Commonwealth has been prepared to flush down the toilet as a result of getting this wrong. So put that in the back of your head to start with. We start with the money, $1.2 billion. The exact opposite of what they were aiming for with their capricious act around robo-debt, which was designed to try to help get that surplus that they thought was so important once upon a time. The next element, which is obviously even more shameful than the financial cost of it, is the human cost, the toll on people's lives, the number of suicides by people, which we assume there are causal links attached to, of people who have incurred robo-debts, which were ultimately now as a result of this settlement, found to have been either incorrectly applied or just applied in the most callous of ways without review options that used to be in the system. Then you've got the reality, as you already mentioned, the people involved. And this comes back to Scott Morrison. I haven't heard this said enough. I actually said it last night on the project. People talk about Stuart Robert now at the front. He is really just the patsy out front. He had nothing to do with this when it first came into effect. But yes, he is the minister now wearing uh, the odium and the heat with the settlement having happened. Before that, you had in the social services, the senior portfolio, as opposed to Alan Tudge, who was in the more junior portfolio once upon a time, you had Christian Porter, as you point out, when this thing was put in place. But before Christian Porter, you had Scott Morrison as social services minister, his first portfolio shift out of immigration. And that is when RoboDebt was conceptualized. He saw it as this big thing that he was gonna do in that new portfolio. By the time Porter was putting it in place as social services minister, Morrison had moved into treasury under Malcolm Turnbull's prime minister. And as treasurer, he was pushing hard on that portfolio area and pushing Porter hard on it as something that had to happen for the budget books to be able to get to that surplus. And then once he was prime minister, he was pushing his treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, and he was pushing his then social services minister who took over to ensure that they got to that surplus as a result of holding the line on robo-debt. Now, what is robo-debt at the end of the day? Lives lost, money lost. Robo-debt is nothing like previous automated payment systems. You've seen this rubbish line that they've tried to run that Labor have had various automated payment systems in the past. They have, but not like this. Not targeting vulnerable welfare recipients, not assuming payment as the first principle rather than review and the ability to challenge, not also taking humans out of the process to the wide extent that robo-debt does. So it's the most vulnerable people getting hit with the assumption of guilt when it comes to payments and then not having the review processes and being expected to pay before they get the opportunity to challenge it. And they don't have the money to pay. 
people that are in the situation where they're getting these claims. They would have spent the proceeds whether they should or shouldn't have received them. And then the mental health anguish that they face, this is something that absolutely renders sports rorts or any other scandal involving water and the Murray Darling or whatever it might be, the Angus Taylor Sydney City Council saga, they render them all insignificant in comparison, but not a single head will roll on this because the only head that should roll on this is that of the Prime Minister of Australia, who was the minister at the time when this thing was conceptualised. It is a disgrace and there is no other word for it. The other thing that strikes me about this is that if there is a an element of Scott Morrison's persona, which is um, unpleasant to the population, there may be several, but if there's one that sort of rings above it all is a kind of smugness about the man, a, a lack of curiosity about the consequences of policies that he might put into place. And for all his, you know, for all his emoting at various times about, you know, Australia and who Australians are, he said at the time of this, no genuine, note the word genuine, welfare recipient, again, suggesting the whole thing of welfare is that it's loaded, laden down with people who are all scamming the system. No genuine welfare recipients would be worse off, said Scott Morrison. And, and plainly they were. You talk about those who, who, you know, who, who were then confronted by uh, a state machine, which was after them for money, which they may have received improperly, but didn't know. I mean, uh, how, but also all the people who weren't as a result of things like income averaging, which has been found to be completely unlawful. The whole oh. structure was based on, a, on an unlawful concept, and it was designed to save money. And, and it, it was designed to save $2.1 billion. It has wound up costing them, you know, more than half of that, just in, in quite apart from legal fees, just in terms of paying all that back. So, um, but the smugness of it, the lack of an apology, the lack of taking of, of personal responsibility from Scott Morrison, he deserves to be punished much more for it than he probably will be because he's proven one thing and that he's very good at slipping punches. Mm. I tell you what, Hugh, that phone ringing in the background, you're going to have somebody knocking on your door wondering if you're breaching your hotel quarantine. Be careful. You're going to have one of those things jammed up your nose very shortly. They're going to put an ankle bracelet on I, you. I can tell you what that phone is. Once a day, I get a phone call from the nurse in the hotel who right. checks to see that my, I have no uh, physical symptoms that might be COVID and that, I have my, that I'm in my mental state, my psychological state is holding up under this isolation. I get to see, for those who haven't done hotel quarantine, um, I see two people in two weeks uh, and it's the same person. I get two uh, COVID tests, one on the second day and one on the 10th day uh, where someone comes to my door. I, I stand in my door. They're completely hazmatted up as if I'm, you know, radioactive. And I get the old sort of stuff up the nostril and the back of the throat. And I, I, are, of there, are there guards on the, on the, in, in the hotel door or you don't even open your door to find out how do you get your food do you order uber eats what's what's the well, well what's i haven't I, you know to be honest to be honest you get fed more than you need um right uh, uh so there's no no problem with the food it, it but they food. organize the food for you or do you have to yes, organize you, you, the food? You, no no they, they do it uh you can do uber eats you can do other things like that but um so you get these paper bags full of food but there's so much food and the food's good enough it's you know it's mm. it's it's fine uh, so that appears, you open up the door and you bring it in. There are guards on the floors and, um, and you don't go outside your room. And what about the person who delivers the food? Are they all hazmatted up as well? Or? I don't think so because um, they're not exposed in any way to the, uh, 
to the people who are inside the hotel rooms. I'm not quite sure how they get rid of rubbish. But they just leave it at your door, do they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you don't see mm. anyone. Wow. And you get a knock on the door and by courtesy, you, you leave a few minutes to wait for them to get away and, uh, and pick it up and bring it in. And do you then, do you get to choose menu options? I mean, I find this fascinating. I haven't been in hotel quarantine. Yeah, I mean, I, you don't, I mean, I think they say, do you have any, you know, dietary requirements? And I don't, I'm total omnivore. Um, I'd have said to them, look, you'd get little cakes, for example, as a little dessert and bottled water and stuff. And I said, look, I don't want bottled water. I'll drink it out of the tap and, uh, and I don't need the cakes. God knows if I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm pacing up and down. <laughs> I try to spend an hour a day just walking up and down this little space and then do a few push-ups. I don't have any gym equipment or anything. So all I got just to essentially keep some blood moving. Um, and do you have, do you have a balcony? Nope. Can you open a window? I, I can open a window. It opens up. Uh, I, so I turn off the aircon. I, I don't want to live in aircon. So I have this little mm. window, which opens up just a few centimeters. It's got the uh, suicide prevention, which was already with the hotel. So you can open up this particular one by, by a couple of inches to let a bit of a breeze through. And, and that's what you do. On. So it's not intolerable by any means. Um, you make the most of it. It's tough. My wife was crook last night and, uh, and you know, and that's tough. Um, and she was mm. calling me at midnight when she was she was unwell, and I'm trying to help her out remotely. And those sorts of things are tough. Um, you know, my daughter turns 15 at this weekend. I'm not going to be there for her birthday. Oh wow! And so these things. But I've had the privilege of travelling overseas and and covering amazing times. And this is the price that's part of it. And I I'm certainly not complaining. And it's keeping. It's part of a process that's keeping Australia in this enviable position of being close to zero, not at zero, but close to zero on COVID. And having seen what it looks like in the United States, uh, where one of the guys was doing security with us when we were going off into these big crowds, um, uh, an, a, a lovely uh, Bible spouting um, ex-Special Forces soldier from South Carolina, uh, he came down with COVID the week after we left in, in recent wow. days. So, uh, you know, it is everywhere over there. So we're going we're gonna to have to take a quick break, aren't we? But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think a lot of people would be interested to hear about those ins and outs of how it works in hotel quarantine. Yeah, there are some Australians, politicians included, going to Canberra that have spent, you know, upward of 15 to 30% of the year in isolation. Think about that for a moment and your mental health. To have spent that chunk of one year stuck in a version of isolation for whatever reason it might be. I mean, that, that, that would not be easy. Well, that might be a good launching point to talk about the pressures on politicians and the incentives for them to go rogue in various ways. You might pick up that theme. Let's take a quick break. <laughs> Hi, this is Gillian Bowen, and I host 10 Speaks' latest podcast, Making Money Easy. Each week, I talk to different economists and financial experts to make sense of global trends and local economics to make the world of finance more accessible to you at home will literally be making money easy. Coming soon on the 10 Speaks homepage or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. This is uh, the Professor and the Hack podcast with uh, The Hack. I'm Hugh Rivington and PVO, the Professor. Uh, Peter, you, you were saying about uh, the, the strains on politicians that this year in particular, they've been more isolated than usual. We've seen the strains on political marriages, uh, the Four Corners uh, story emerging and um, and we are left with the uh, impression that the price is paid by women 
in relationships with politicians, uh, not by uh, the men. Uh, I, I don't know, in the fallout of that, plainly, there's no expectation that, uh, that any politicians are going to lose jobs or rank. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, I think from that Four Corners investigation uh, that the, the, the going forward substance or most substantive part of it was what it means for, if you like, what you would call the, the disempowered half in a relationship that forms at work, uh, like happened between Alan Tudge and his media advisor. Uh, and that disempowered half is usually the woman, not the man, but essentially in a broader sense, it is the person who works uh, underneath a boss, uh, which is what Alan Tudge was to his media advisor. And, you know, th these relationships happen in corporate life as well as in politics. But one of the things that's uniquely difficult about managing it in politics, and, and not all these relationships that form, by the way, are, are affairs like what Alan Tudge had. Rather, they're, they're often consensual relationships like his was, but also between you know two single people or at least one single person and then uh, a relationship forms and a marriage can form thereafter. Uh, I mean, you know, Tony Burke is now married to his former chief of staff uh, because those two worked closely together, got to know each other, fell in love and ended up uh, marrying and, and are married to this day. Now, what's interesting about the staffing situation in Parliament House with when it happens in whatever form it takes, the problem is that the members of Parliament Staff Act uh, basically means, in essence, that it bypasses all IR laws and staffers can be sacked for pretty much no reason at all if they work for a minister. And at one level, we need that uh, in the political system because it's such a partisan job and you need to have the ability as a minister to offload a staffer at the drop of the hat if you think that they no longer support your side of politics or if you don't have that level of trust anymore with them. But the problem, and this is what I think the Four Corners episode has really opened up, the problem is that that partisan need to have that level of workplace flexibility can become an untoward capacity to offload someone uh, when a relationship goes bad uh, or when something sours and there are just no protections there. And it is usually women uh, and political staffers at that who can find themselves on the wrong end of the stick there. And there are all sorts of allegations that have been made, uh, Tudge vis-a-vis -vis, uh, his, his media advisor in the way that she was treated in the aftermath of their relationship. But what it has exposed is the lack of protections in the system uh, and a debate about what should or shouldn't happen to try to create some of those protections. But it's a difficult one. We've got this so-called bonk ban in place now. It wasn't in place uh, when the allegations uh, actually happened uh, for Tudge and, and I guess the allegations which he denies for Christian Porter as well. But um, that doesn't change the fact that the bonking ban doesn't fix uh, if you like, the lack of an HR process in place uh, when these things happen. Because, of course, these things can still happen between a staffer in a different ministerial office and a minister. Uh, there's nothing in the ban uh, that precludes that happening. Someone who married a, a colleague um, 
uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not in a position to criticize uh, relationships <laughs> forming between people in the same office. Uh, I do note that it, you mentioned the corporate world, that one of the most senior executives in the land, the head of nine entertainment, mm. Hugh Marks, has uh, uh, abruptly resigned. And uh, the, the lines have been drawn with the relationship that he had with, a, with another executive uh, there. There was a, a, a hastily called board meeting at nine and uh, and out of the consequence of that uh, Hugh Marks has, has resigned from from a plum job uh, in Australian media possibly the plum job in commercial media in Australia so um, I wonder whether as these shifts are happening in the corporate world whether over time it's going to reach deeper and deeper into political life and whether the time will come when uh, politicians uh, in these things will be held to account um, for relationships which breach these uh, things. I suppose you could say to a certain degree it happened with Barnaby Joyce, uh, you know, wh whether that will become more of a standard thing. I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but um, but you get the feeling as if the, the sense of outrage by 50% um, uh, of the voting population on pure electoral terms, quite apart from equity terms, uh, is bound to, to cause a shift um, on that over time. And I think that the Tudges and the, the Porters of the world, whatever the allegations are against them and how all that works, will find it more difficult in the future. Is, is that how you feel that, that line is, is travelling? Yeah, I do. I mean, I do think that, that um, change is afoot. Uh, and culturally, I think there's a recognition uh, partly as a result of exposés happening and the damage that, that gets done by it, uh, that change needs to happen. But uh, I worry that um, the partisan nature of politics, uh, and, and if you like the elements of hypocrisy on both sides of this, you know, with Labor being disinclined to criticise the Liberals when something happens and vice versa, because glass houses and stones and all of that, I wonder whether all of that is going to prevent the kind of institutional frameworks being put in place that kind of need to be put in place. Uh, it's, it's such a difficult thing in Canberra. There's not really an opportunity. We don't think about the political staffers that often, frankly, in terms of um, the, the protections that they should have, but they don't really have them in Canberra. It's a, it's a tough job. And, and that can relate to workplace bullying, not just personal relationships that might form and go bad at every level, political staffers, it's a uniquely privileged thing to do. Um, because, you know, you, you've got a proximity to power and to influence. Uh, and it's, it's a fascinating job. I, I did it briefly many years ago in my early 20s myself. Um, and, and, and many people use it as a launch, and many people are using it as a launch pad for their own political careers. Many of the, of the people who are MPs and senators got there through the political staffing role. So, oh, too, uh, too many of you, I would argue. Yes. <laughs> it's, 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 it's been something that I, I used to, one of my first areas of research, actually, academically, was tracking the number of, uh, or tracking the pre-parliamentary careers of politicians in both the Senate and the House and looking at how they'd changed and how they were variable between the major parties and the minor parties and all the rest of it. And boy, oh boy, the uptick in political staffing experience amongst the political class is extraordinary. And I'm sure it's only increased since I did those papers back then. Uh, and I tell you what, uh, you know, we all think, I'm sure that it's good to have some of that, uh, but you don't want too much of it any more than you want too many lawyers or too many of any other particular professions in the parliament. And, and we have too many ex-political staffers uh, joining the ranks of the parliamentarians, I would argue. And, and it's not, uh, you know, the Labor side is not exempted from difficult 
issues in offices. We've seen uh, Albo's uh, Deputy Chief of Staff, um, Sabina Husek, just quit after what she says is defamatory and entirely false claims being made against her in, a, in some sort of document that did the rounds, now been deleted, but nothing is ever completely deleted. Um, and so she has quit. It, it, does, it does bring home, you know, how tough those jobs are, um, satisfying as though they may be. Obviously, people, you know, no one has to do them. People do line up and do them. But it, but it, is, it is a weird uh, workplace, as you say. If I can <clears throat> move on just a, a tiny bit, just one other thing. We don't normally sure. speak a great deal about um, state matters. We have done a bit about Dan Andrews, I suppose, in Victoria and COVID this year. But the New South Wales budget has come down and they have bravely stepped into an area uh, which most have avoided, that uh, Ken Henry and his tax review uh, back, uh, you might remember, uh, and if you do remember, the um, Kevin Rudd mm. launched uh, the tax review when he was freshly into office. And one of the changes he wanted to see was the end of stamp duty on property, uh, which was a barrier to entry for people buying property, um, and instead a tax system which would be based on long-term property taxes, uh, that meaning it, no one can avoid if you own a property, it's very hard to shift out of that property. It becomes uh, a, a solid tax base. The New South Wales government has, has grasped the nettle and gone on to do this. It is fundamental policy shift, which will affect everyone in the country in one form or another, if it is found to be attractive and to work in New South Wales, which becomes the Petri dish for this, I suppose, um, and may well spread across, across the country. Is this a, uh, 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 just a small moment in history in terms of tax reform? Oh, it's a great idea uh, and it's necessary. And as you say, Ken Henry recommended it all those years ago and it's been avoided as being both too hard at one level politically, uh, too hard fiscally too, with concerns that there's a bit of a black hole in between the transition point uh, in the budgets that would happen at the state level. Uh, and also uh, problems because, of course, in the Federation, the, the splitting of responsibilities when it comes to tax collection uh, always made it a difficult thing. So New South Wales is now going it alone and we'll see if it, 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 it becomes a, a point of change for other states to follow. The key thing in the way that this is being done, I mean, obviously the aim here is to reduce upfront costs and barriers to people being able to buy a home. Uh, and often the time it takes to save for stamp duty to be able to then get a loan and purchase a property quite apart from the exorbitant price of a lot of properties these days becomes a massive barrier to entry. Uh, and with a lot of the responsible lending provisions, even notwithstanding some changes in the wake of COVID, that's, uh, you know, that makes it harder for banks to lend to people who haven't already spent years saving, not even for a deposit that they have to save on the house, but for the stamp duty that they're going to have to pay as well. So it's about removing those upfront costs. And if you like spreading it over the life of the ownership of the property, the same way in a sense, for simplicity's sake, that you pay council rates, uh, you would pay these property tax rates over time. Now, the key to doing this successfully politically and fairly, frankly, uh, which they seem to have baked into this from what I can see uh, with the way that the New South Wales budget has been formulated, is that uh, people who have already paid stamp duty, that property will in a sense be exempt from those property taxes uh, and it's only future purchases. And even then you have a choice, I believe, uh, in my initial reading of this, where you can That's pay true. up front if you, so, if you so choose, which is interesting as well. So uh, this is the way, just to quickly circle this off, this is the way that changes were made uh, around capital gains tax 
on on investment properties when they first came in uh, by Labor, I believe it was. They they if you like they ensured that anyone that already owned an investment property wasn't suddenly slugged with capital gains tax. So they avoided it being retrospective. This is its own version of that because otherwise it's too politically intolerable uh, to bring that kind of change in. Yeah, farmers don't like it. And of course, uh, they have a strong voice, uh, but it'll be interesting to watch because I'm sure there are every other state treasurer is looking at it very keenly to see oh, if yeah. something you can bring and, and survive with politically. Uh, PBO, we're out of time uh, so much. We haven't even got to talk about your book, which you've just sent off to the printers or off for final copy editing. Uh, I'd love to hear more about that, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll... It's not out until uh, till early next year anyway, Hugh. So plenty of time for me to plug my book. Don't worry. Uh, okay, <laughs> well, we'll make use of that because I'm intrigued as to why you'd be putting out a book on Scott Morrison right now and what might be in it. <laughs> Um, but let's leave that for another time. Thanks for listening, uh, and we'll talk to you soon. See you, man. Take care. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.